The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to Mom and Dad Are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, July 31st, the Slate staff call-in answering extravaganza edition. I'm Dan Coyce. I'm the dad of Harper, who is six, and Lyra, who is nine. Today, we're answering a smorgasbord of listener call-in questions about divorce, inappropriate books, last names, and being naked in Germany. But first, parenting triumphs and fails. Allison? Okay, my triumph this week, I have a triumph. It's that I am not in the studio. I'm on vacation, having another wonderful vacation with my family. Have a good show. Oh, right. Well, I've got to fail this week. Lyra really loves to read, as listeners may know from previous episodes of the show. We go to the library, like, every couple of weeks. We take out, like, 40 books, and then, you know, every once in a while, one of them disappears, and then we have to pay for it, which is not a big deal. But this month, like, eight books somehow got lost somewhere, and we had a bill from the Arlington County Library for 100 bucks. And I kept procrastinating because I thought, well, these books have got to be somewhere And we looked all over the place. We looked at their grandparents' house and in both cars. We couldn't find them. And then we got a letter from a collection agency about these library books. Like like a collection agency is writing me because of Geronimo Stilton. So I just paid it. But I failed to get Lyra to appreciate the seriousness of the situation because the amount to her was so cartoonishly large. I can't get $100 from Lyra. She does not have $100. She would have to lose 50 teeth to get $100. Um, her, the debt is so large, she could never pay it back. So she does not actually suffer any ill effects. And also I'm not convinced that it wasn't me who didn't lose the book somehow. It seems like something I would do. So my fail is that I was unable to turn this hundred dollars into an actual teachable moment for my kid. Instead, I'm just out a hundred bucks. And all we managed to do is tell her that she can only take out 10 books at a time to minimize the possibility of future book losses. Anyway, I could use some kind of a life hack. From our listeners, how do you keep your kids from losing all their library books? Please email me at momanddad at slate.com. That's M-O-M-A-N-D-D-A-D at slate.com and tell me. Thank you. So with Allison gone, I've asked a number of colleagues here at Slate to join me to answer just a whole shitload of listener calls. If you've got a question for a future show, please give us a call at any hour. You can leave a message on our voicemail at 424-255-RUDE. That number again, 424-255-RUDE. Rude. You can remember it because that is what Allison is for being on vacation. All right. Our first call comes from listener Amanda from Queens. Take it away, Amanda. Hi, Allison and Dan. My name is Amanda, and I live in Queens, New York. Um, I'm currently six months pregnant with our first child. My husband and I have been discussing first names for our baby boy for weeks, but also in the back of my mind has been his last name. I kept my last name when my husband and I got married five years ago, and I think that particular frontier is well behind me and many women and families. But the new issue I'm grappling with now that I'm pregnant is the overwhelming cultural assumption that our son will have my husband's last name. I think that may very well be the way that we decide to go, um, if for no other reason than to not have to explain it to a bunch of confused and some potentially upset family members and friends. But deep down, it irks me that this isn't a bigger part of the conversation. It also strikes me as a particularly tough question because none of the compromises I've heard of are really good options. Hyphenation for my for us would mean a 17-letter last name that I think would be too much of a burden for our son, and some sort of combined name or new name for the whole family would make nobody happy. I'd love to hear your thoughts and whether you know of any alternatives that have worked for you or for other people that you know. Thanks. Love your show. Congratulations, Amanda. So joining me to talk about this is Slate's Hannah Rosen, uh, who found one solution for this problem in her own family. Hannah, can you tell us about that? 
Yes, we decided to do a combined name, which is not a hyphenated name, but is a single name, which is Rosenplatz. Now, I bet a lot of you, like on your answering machines or among your friends, you go by a name, like your family is known by a certain name. So even if we hadn't done this, people would say, oh, we're going to the Rosenplatz's house. And so we just smashed the names together and made one name. Now you can ask me if I regret that decision. Do you regret that decision? Yeah. Who wants oh, to be no. named Rosenplatz? I mean, you know, when you're in the mode of having a baby, you're like so romantic and you think things are really cute. And so you name your baby like Apple or, you know, you're trying for that distinctiveness. And so you wind up with a dud like Rosenplatz. I mean, I'm not sure Rosen or Plotz is better, but who wants to go around being called Gideon Rosenplatz, which is the name of my last child? It sounds like a biblical joke. Oh, man. I mean, so, so Amanda, I agree that Different different names for each kid feels weird, though I know people who have done that in their families. Hyphenation definitely feels like sort of a game of generational Jenga, like somewhere six generations down the line, it's all going to collapse as everything gets piled on top of itself. But I had really sort of held out hope that combining names might have worked, like that, you know, that that is a solution that could work for most people, maybe people who have less silly names than Rosen or Plots. I still think it's the best option. I mean, that's the other thing. I don't... I love Amanda because she's from Queens and I'm from Queens and I love all people from Queens. But I hate this topic because I think, you know, it pushes you solidly into this mode of personal choice. Like we're in an era when I can choose everything. And I do think that, you know, family names should be governed by some sort of tradition. Mm-hmm. And I wish I could think of a tradition. Right. Um, it sucks that the current and, and tradition so, is... So combining names is the closest I can come. I mean, you just come up with something that sounds good. Because I think the actual day-to-day important thing is that your your family is a, is a, in, a, in its public face appears to be a family and is unified. Like, I know people who shall remain unnamed who give their children different last names. Like, one has the moms and one has the dads. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that seems to me the worst of all possible solutions because it's like they're not united in school when they're out there in the world, like nobody knows their siblings. That seems kind of unfair. Yeah. I mean, that seems like a bummer to me too, but I think your point is well taken that the key is maybe not even what name the kid has as much as it is, as you alluded to early in this conversation, the name that you present to the world. We are the Smith Coises, um, even though our kid's name is Coise. And now I sort of honestly wish often that we had just combined our names and called ourselves called our kids the Koi Smiths and maybe even called ourselves the Koi Smiths. I think that that would have been cool. But I do think that as long as to the world, we are the Smith Koises, I think that that matters just as much as those names that you now, give your kids. Now, the one part of Amanda's question we haven't addressed is why this other tradition lives on that the father's name, that the children automatically get get the father's name. I think that's really interesting, like why we hang on to that. Um, There are some cases where that just causes me outrage, like families where I know that the mom is the heart of the thing and she makes all the family decisions and she's like sliced out of the history. It makes me crazy. Right, at the exact moment Um, the child is born, it's like, it's, you're gone, you're out of here. At the exact moment the child is born, it's like, whoosh, you're out of here. Exactly, and it's weird. It's like, even, you know, day to day, you know this, Dan, when you're looking in the school directory and often it's the mom mom who's like, you know, and, and, you know, I know you're like a good, super involved dad, but a lot of times it is the mom who's there and kind of making the play dates and who I meet or whatever in the playground. But I don't actually like know the kid's last name because right. I've never met the dad. So I know the mom and you have to like, what's the kid's name in the directory? And you have to ask your five-year-old who does or don't rem- doesn't remember. It's like a practical problem that the moms who do a lot of the heavy lifting are just kind of absent in the genealogy. 
Our, our, our school directory is slightly more advanced than that in that it does list it does give the moms their own listings under their last name. So Alia's listing is Smith, comma, Alia, C. Coates. Right. right. <laughs> so right. in the hairpin earlier this month, um, Molly Carroll May told the story of what happened when she gave her daughter her last name and sort of the widely varying responses that she got. Now, in the end, the piece advocates, you know, having a conversation with your partner about what you should do as opposed to just like taking any last name for granted, whether it's the father's or the mother's or a combined or a hyphenated or whatever. But she does make what I thought was a very reasonable point that after thousands of years of patriarchy, it, it wouldn't really hurt anyone if we just did mom's last names for a while. Like that wouldn't be a bad thing necessarily. That is a good idea, except you do feel like the bossy person wins. Like in a, in a couple of families <laughs> I know like that, where the husband has taken the wife's last name, it's like a middle finger to his family. Like it is right. actually, not that the family only feels that way, it is actually that way. Like it feels like a radical act where the dad just doesn't want to be associated with his family for one reason or another. Um, but I like that idea. If we make it a collective notion that we are, you know, having a, a few years of matriarchy to make up for the many years of patriarchy, then it's not like just the bossy one wins or right. I hate my family of origin. It's just a collect it's a gentle collective decision. That Great. seems good. So decided. Great job, everyone. So let, go forth and multiply. Thanks so much, Hannah, for joining me for this. Sure. My pleasure. All right. We've got a question from Ajara in New York. And when you introduce yourself and your daughter's name at the beginning of the show, I'm always reminded of my love for Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials trilogy. I first read those around 11, and I remember that my mom had to write a note to my language arts teacher giving her permission to lend me the books because of the religious themes. And you also talk about how much Lyra loves Harry Potter, and both of those things got me thinking about how you've navigated books that might have themes meant for older kids. Uh, I conveniently age with the Harry Potter series as they came out, but now kids have the option of binge reading them, which, of course, I would have done if I had the option myself. Um, but, you know, I think curiosity in books that might be meant for an older audience is a much more subtle issue than, um, you know, movies that might be inappropriate or music. So I'm just wondering how you both have handled that and what your thoughts are. Thank you. All right. Well, joining me to answer this question is Katie Waldman. She's a Slate staff writer. She also helps me out at the Slate Book Review. Hi, Katie. Hey. So my general take on this is that uh, it's a subtler question to ask about books than movies and music, but it's also a slightly subtler answer, I like to think. Or maybe this is just me assuaging the way I parent and the way I once was a kid. But I tend to think that that no kid is ever really going to be like emotionally harmed by reading a book that is slightly too advanced for them. But Katie, when you were a kid, did you read stuff that was like above your pay grade? I did. I did. And I think some of those books, I just didn't understand what was going on. And I would skip over those passages with sexual innuendo and it was fine. Um, and then there were other things that traumatized me a little bit, but I am a stronger person for being so traumatized. What's an example of something um, that traumatized you a little bit? <laughs> so when I was seven, I got a coloring book by the National Geographic that was also um, explaining volcanic eruptions. Mm -hmm. And I thought I was going to die because of a volcano. Um, we lived in Washington, D.C. There were no volcanoes, but this really scared me. Um, but I am glad that I was introduced to <laughs> this idea of volcanoes and that I could work through that. And I think that there are lots of kind of scary ideas that are 
easier to process and work through when you encounter them in a book than if you see them on a really graphic TV show. Yeah, Ajara, Katie's seven-year-old terror of volcanoes is a great reminder that the thing that you might think would be traumatic to your kid often is not, and the thing that you never expect would be traumatic to your kid is. But either way, I sort of feel like coming into it through a book is like is a way of sort of dampening to some extent the traumatic effect it might have on you. I feel like showing a kid a movie in which, you know, the world explodes or thousands of people die horribly or one beloved character dies or is tortured or something, I feel like that is something that might stick and be more difficult for a kid to deal with than reading a book. I generally think the kids who are ambitious enough as readers to read things way above their level, to like want to read things way above their level, are probably going to be fine if you just leave them alone to do that. You know, when I was a kid, I also read a lot of things way before I was ready to understand them. I feel like it made me uh, like a reader who really wanted to advance and wanted to read older, and it made me a smarter kid. Also, I read tons of Doonesbury when I was like six, and that is wh- everything I understood about the 1960s came from Doonesbury at six, which is actually probably a pretty great and optimistic way to learn about what the 60s were. Yeah, I also think that sometimes we underestimate sort of the darkness and the angst of little kids. And it can be actually really nice and um, sort of affirming to encounter that darkness in books. I mean, you think maybe you're sheltering your kid from mature themes, but it's possible that those themes are sort of percolating in her head anyway. And then she opens a book and sees a character who is thinking about the same stuff. And it's a really nice experience, and it's a good introduction to sort of those more complex ways of thinking about the world. All right. Thanks, Katie. Sure. All right. Our next call comes from Mary in Virginia. My question is, uh, what are parents doing nowadays to plan for college for their children? I worked uh, to help pay for my college. My parents did not save for college for me. I felt like I wanted to have the full college experience and stay in the dorms and and do all that, but that was not an option for me. I lived at home with my single mom and and paid for college. And so I'm now saving for my children, but I also think that working during college is a benefit. You know what what some of the parents' plans are and and how you guys are planning for your own children's college. Thank you. Bye. All right. Joining me to help answer this question is Jordan Weissman, who's Slate's senior business and economics correspondent. Hey, Jordan. Hey, how you doing? Good, thanks. So, you know, this is a great question and one that I don't know really anything about. My kids are six and nine, and I obviously should have been doing a better job of saving for college for them already. But really, all they have is I think they have small 529 accounts in the state of Wisconsin that their grandfather set up for them that I'm hoping can be transferred to some other state because I don't think they are going to go to Wisconsin. But that's it. (laughs) um, So I kind of want to step back for a second because just the the econ writer in me wants to kind of look at the the big picture of this and and then go into the kind of tactics the parents are using. And 529s are the biggie, by the way. But um, so before you can talk about how you're going to save for college, you kind of have to have a sense of um, is this like even a possible task? I, you know, I, I one time I, I saw a set of graphs that J.P. Morgan was sending around to its clients, um, trying to tell them that in 15 years, if current rates, if current trends continued, 
uh, the cost of a year of a private college would be $90,000 on average, and that for a state school would be $40,000 on average. Um, I believe that was just tuition, if I'm recalling correctly. Um, and uh, I'm pretty sure that their idea was just to scare the pants out of their clients so they would use whatever wealth management services uh, <laughs> J.P. Morgan was offering up. Right. But, you know, that was the kind of thing. You can, if you if you make some really horrible assumptions um, about uh, it kind of uh, kind of extrapolate to that. I, I actually want to offer a little bit of uh, words of calm to the parents of America, which is I think I'm of the opinion that college uh, prices are going to slow down. They're already a little bit lower than you think because usually you see data about um, the actual you know sticker price of a college, but most colleges you don't actually pay retail. You get some sort of discount. You get a lot of financial aid. Very few students actually get that you know at a private school pay that full forty fifty thousand um, dollars. Anyway. And uh, there, beyond that, I think there are some trends going on right now that uh, make it likely you're going to see uh, the tuition increases kind of slow down over time. Um, I think I had sort of hoped that we were, in fact, in a bubble and that maybe by the time my kids were college age, it would it would crash. Um, you know, I, I, I tend to not to... I, I don't have a lot of faith in that happening. I do think there are, there are some small private schools that are actually lowering their tuition finally because and, and this gets into um, one of the reasons tuition was going up in the first place, which was uh, about two thirds at, at private schools. Again, about two thirds of every new uh, dollar of tuition added was being used then to finance financial aid, which they were kind of shuffling around. And sometimes right. it was to give to needy students. A lot of times it was to give students they just wanted to kind of court and, uh, you know, smart kids, kids whose parents or kids they thought were going to be successful for whatever reason. Um, but so that's very – so it's going to be a lot of money, though. College is expensive today. It's going to be expensive tomorrow. That's the bottom line. Um, and as for working your way through it um, – you know, studies have suggested that if you work more than 16 hours a week, it's really not very good for your GPA. Um, and that makes a lot of sense because we only have so much bandwidth. You know, I mean, you can't concentrate on all these different things in your life at once. And if you're going to be a serious student, you need time to study. Um, and so I worked exactly 20 hours a week all the way through college. And I guess that's what happened to me. <laughs> it's, I wish I had that excuse. Yeah. Um, but but, you know, I was on the student paper. So that that was work. Um, but and, and so beyond that, also, it, it's not clear to me exactly. Uh, you know, not everyone can get a job if they want it in college. It, it's this might surprise some people. But the, even though costs have gone up and it's more expensive than ever to go to school, uh, the percentage of students working has actually fallen uh, somewhat steadily since 2000. It was falling before the Great Recession, and then it kept falling even faster. So there, there are only so many jobs out there for people, even with things like federal work study. So how do you save? Um, the big one uh, is 529 state or college savings plans. Um, the, every state has one or has a few, offers a few. Uh, a lot of people compare them. It's sort of like a mutual fund. It's tax deferred. So I think of it actually as almost like a 401k for saving for college. You take your money, you put it in the plan. The federal government doesn't take it. You can grow that money and then use it to um, pay for your, college, your, stu- uh, your, your, your child's education. Um, the and Mary, de- it's worth noting that in Virginia, there's in fact a very, very large and impressive 529 plan. It's the biggest one in the country. It's currently managing uh, over $46 billion for over 2 million future student accounts. Yeah, And, you know, the thing about these plans is um, 
Yeah, I mean, they come with some downsides. You know, there are, there are fees and such involved. If if your student doesn't, if you're if your student, what am I saying? <laughs> if your child doesn't use all of the money, or you say you save too much, you, you, some, they, something happens, and, and you have to then withdraw it without actually spending it on school. There are penalties, um, which is unfortunate. Um, so you, you don't want to oversave in one of them. Plus, of course, any money you put in there, then like a four hundred one k, that's not money you can do anything else put elsewhere it's not money that you can uh save towards a house or a car or whatnot but the bright side is these are also portable just because you you put money in the virginia or those you, just because you have your, your your kid has a 529 plan in wisconsin doesn't mean that you can't be moved to virginia say right uh, most of them can be kind of shuffled around there are other sorts of trusts that you can set up to essentially save money for your kid but i i don't think there are that i mean you know, again, 529s are sort of the biggie. That that that's the main one. Beyond that, you just kind of want to, you know, use. I mean, in the end, it's about kind of sound basic investment. You know, you if you're trying to save a lot of money or time or kind of quickly over a 15 year horizon, you want to be kind of, you know, heavy on equities. You want to be heavy on stocks, and uh, you know, not too conservative in the way you're putting away cash. Uh, One thing that I'd always heard, Jordan, mm-hmm. is that is that you're at, you're generally better off just saving for retirement as opposed to trying to save aggressively for college on the grounds that the kinds of financial aid and loans that you can get for college are so like you know are 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 have interest rates low enough that it's worth it probably in the end to just save money for retirement now and when the time comes that you have to deal with college if it's more expensive than you have just take out the loans and suck it up and pay them back later is um, that crazy so yes technically you know, if you're assuming that, you know, after inflation, you're going to make a, a four or five percent rate of return on your retirement funds, which is, you know, not or, you know, even, th- even anywhere from three to five. Right. Um, it's not crazy. You know, student loan interest rates are going to be a little bit below that um, even, because they're, they're essentially ta- they, they, they essentially are uh, the government's uh, tr- the they're basically the interest rate on a government treasury bill plus a, f- a few extra points depending whether or not you're an undergrad or a graduate student or a parent. Um, that said, you know, I think there there's something nice about not having to <laughs> worry about loans as a 20-something. There is something psychologically valuable about that, not being so deep in debt. Um, and so even if it might not be um, in an in a sort of accounting sense, the smartest way to save. I do think taking a little bit of pressure off of uh, off of a student and, and letting them know that they're not financing their entire education with debt um, is is a good th- it, it is nice. At the same time, yes, having more saved away does kind of cut into the amount of financial aid you can get. But then on the other hand, if it's all in the parent's retirement account, then they're probably going to, um, you know, if you have a big retirement account, I'm guessing the financial aid office is going to, um, unless notice it's actually, is going to notice that unless it's actually in a 401k, which I don't believe are, are actually considered. Um, so if you're a parent who intends on paying for your kid's college, you know, at some reasonably inexpensive or affordable institution, yeah. doesn't it make more sense then for you to take out the loans 
or, you know, for the kid to take out the loans, but for you to assume that debt after the child graduates from college. Your child doesn't have to worry about the debt. You can pay it off at a time in your life when you're presumably making a lot more money than you were 15 years before. And so instead of saving at, from the child's birth money that could otherwise be growing in a retirement account, you pay back loans 15 to 20 years later at a time when you can better afford it and you have, in fact, had years and years of socking money away in a retirement account. Um, yeah, I mean, that's not uh, terribly – I mean, I, there, there is some sense there. I think that uh, one of the reasons – I mean, I'm not a financial advisor, but one of the things that comes to mind and actually kind of um, almost uh, – one of the things that comes to mind here is you're kind of assuming everything's going to be going just fine at that point. That, you know, uh, that you're, you're, you're assuming that um, – you're not going to encounter any kind of unexpected financial hardship, essentially. Right. Uh, and, and that's what makes that a little bit dangerous. Uh, you know, if if something happens to the value of your home or you lose a job or whatnot, something happens to that, your your savings, um, your stock portfolio just declines. If you've got a lot of debt, then suddenly your net worth is, you know, if you've got a lot of debt already and you're trying to pay back uh, your, your kid's student loans and, and all of a sudden, you know, you have less money than you thought, um, it's actually it all, mathematically, it's all compounded by debt and it puts you in a much worse financial situation than if you had just paid it off in advance. So I, I think that there's a little bit of risk you're taking on by doing that. And if you have a tolerance for uh, risk or you're confident in um, what the years ahead are, are going to be like for yourself career-wise or financially, then, yeah, it's not a terrible concept, but you know, there's risk involved. All right. Thanks, Jordan, for coming in and talking to us about this. No problem. All right. Our next question comes from Kara in Oregon. Uh, my question that I'd like to put out to your listeners and or cadre of experts is regarding a shared custody situation known as the bird's nest. My ex-husband and I have 50-50 custody of our three-and-a-half-year-old daughter, and we are really good cooperative co-parents. Um, as we look forward to the future and take into account the advice that abounds about shared custody for school-aged children, we do know that we'll need to make some adjustments from our current schedule to bring as much stability as possible to our daughter's life. Um, one custody arrangement a friend of mine suggested was the concept of the bird's nest, which is basically that the child lives in one house 100% of the time, with the parents coming and going as the custody schedule dis dictates, like a mother or father bird bringing food to the baby and then flitting away for time. The parents would have their own bedroom in the quote-unquote kid's house, so there wouldn't be too much violation of personal space. Uh, the parent who is not the quote-unquote parent of record um, then goes and lives in the adult house that the parents share, sort of away from the bird's nest, uh, which would be like a studio apartment or something very modest. I love this concept of custody for many reasons, um, more stability for the child, and not having to buy more than one set of everything for the child. Um, you know, there's only one house the child lives in instead of two houses. Uh, but I'm having difficulty getting my ex-husband to agree to it, as we know absolutely no one who has even considered this arrangement. Uh, if you can put this question out to your listeners and experts, I would greatly appreciate it. Thanks, you guys, so much for your podcast. I love it. All right. Joining me for this uh, question is Slate staff writer Amanda Hess. Amanda could the bird's nest ever work in a hundred million fucking years? <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think it's a fascinating idea, and it would probably make a great Nancy Myers romantic comedy. Uh, but I think it takes the idea of stability for children a little bit too literally. 
Um, and I think the most important thing for a kid is not that their bedroom, or their home, their physical home be stable, but that the relationship between their parents be stable and that their parents be stable as individuals. And it strikes me that the best way to do that is for them to have separate homes that they can go to uh, and build their lives there. Yeah, I don't know. You know, it's the, the, the idea is very appealing in the total abstract, right? I mean, there's a, a pretty interesting psychology today piece on the bird's nest by Edward Kirk that points out it's not just about stability, but the idea is to minimize disruption at an age when disruption really can screw with a kid, whereas adults are theoretically better at dealing with disruption. But I think – but I worry that you're right, Amanda, that for almost every couple imaginable, the sort of upheaval in the parent's life is going to sort of float its way down to the kid's life anyway. The fact that they are dealing constantly and being in the same physical space constantly as this person who they very recently decided not to share their lives with I think is potentially – difficult and troublesome. And in this particular case, Kara, I feel like I see a huge red flag, which is that your ex-husband doesn't want to do it. (laughs) It's like the only way this could ever work is if both parents are totally on the same page about every single aspect of child raising, and he doesn't even want to do the bird's nest. (laughs) Yeah, that seems to be like the first indication that it's not really going to work out. I also wonder, you know, I mean, maybe their lives seem set up for this right now, but... Perhaps one or both of them will have a partner in the future. I'm just it just doesn't seem clear to me uh, what will happen if any circumstance changes here. Right. It's a it's a situation that that even though it feels stable to the child is wildly precarious for the adults involved. And therefore, I feel like it ends up being dangerous for the entire family. Right. Because, yes, a new partner or a different financial situation or anything can really, really screw this scenario up in a way that, you know, shared custody in two different houses is not quite as likely to get completely botched by life circumstances. Yeah, it seems like almost a sort of compromise on this sort of outdated idea of staying together for the kids. Uh, So in this case, you get a divorce, but you continue to sort of live together. I'm just not sure that that either of those ideas really makes sense anymore. All right. Well, so I would love our readers to email us if you have, in fact, successfully accomplished the bird's nest and we're just being jerks about it. Or if um, if you know someone who has, we'd love to hear about it. Please email us at slate.com. Tell us the story. Um, and that, I'm sure, would be a great comfort to Kara um, after our disappointing answer to her question. But thank you, Kara, for calling. And thank you, Amanda, for joining me. Thanks for having me. Our next call comes from Kirsten in Philadelphia. I have a question of etiquette. Uh, My husband and I do not have children, but we often have visitors to our house who do have children. Uh, I always wondered about how much child-proofing of the house is expected by parents uh, when they come to visit with their small children. I mean, obviously, I know to put away things that I definitely don't want broken, and I try to take cues from what's going on at our friends' houses when we visit them, but I don't know that I'm necessarily ready to paste bottle caps over all of the buttons on our electronics so that small children don't go pressing the pretty lights. I would really appreciate your feedback on that issue. Thanks so much and keep up the good work, guys. Bye-bye. All right. Joining me uh, for this question is Slate's brand brand new minted editor-in-chief, Julia Turner. Hi, Julia. Hi, Dan. So, Julia, my immediate answer to this is, oh, my God, no. But uh, what do you think as someone who recent, more recently was childless and now, in fact, has kids the age of kids who put things in their mouths all the time? Um, first of all, can I just say how excited I am to be on Mom and Dad are Fighting? <laughs> sure. I Thank love, you. I love this podcast. <laughs> I'm, I'm, like, totally fangirled out to be on the show. Um, 
Yeah, how to the no. You should not childproof your house for me to come over. I mean, this this lovely Kirsten, you seem like the most lovely and excessively thoughtful hostess I've ever encountered. She's so considerate. <laughs> You're very, very considerate. Um, your primary concern as the host of parents bearing toddlers should be the first thing you mentioned, which is clearing out stuff that you don't want wrecked or broken. Because if I come to your house with my children, they might wreck or break your stuff. I will try as a um, I will try to contain them and and not wreck or break your stuff, but they 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 can be. Um, it's hard to predict the movements of a toddler. I have found, um, but in addition to being sort of above and beyond to to paste bottle caps over lights, which is that even a thing you have to do? I haven't even done that I, yet. I, I didn't do that. No, M- maybe that would solve some problems. Yeah, the thing that I've been finding, my boys are seventeen months now, and what childproofing means changes like every two weeks. So what you did for a set of kids for brunch in August might then be rendered obsolete by, you know, an afternoon tea in September. So it doesn't even seem quite practical to childproof your house for other people's kids. Yeah, and Julie, I think your point is well taken too that that the main thing is to put away things that you're worried they might break because honestly speaking as the parent who has brought kids over to non-child havers houses, I, f- I feel bad if my kid falls down and hits his head on the corner of your coffee table or something. I feel worse if my child breaks your precious object. And so if you really want to do the most considerate thing for those guests possible, don't make them feel bad when, when their kid breaks your, like, china figurine that your mother gave you. That is, like, the number one most important thing. But, Julia, do you feel like – I mean, the excessive consideration of this question makes me worry that Kirsten actually is friends with a bunch of, like, monster parents who do get upset if they go to a child-free couple's house and they don't have outlet covers over everything and they haven't padded their tables and chairs. Like, are, is, are we in – is this culture so kid first now that non-kid havers feel under siege? I don't think so. I mean, I, I don't know. I've never encountered this expectation. I mean, to me, the great problem with having – with the transition between being friends with a lovely couple and then being friends with a lovely couple who has a kid before you do is not actually who or what gets broken or injured during brunch, but the fact that brunch is kind of ruined for a few yeah. years while your yeah. kids are this age. Like, actually, if you want to have brunch and really be able to have a conversation with your adult friends, you might be better off going to the house of the child havers because they presumably do have some child-proofed pit where they can throw the kids and actually pay attention to you and, you know, your your career travail or your real estate story or whatever the hell you're talking about at brunch for 20 minutes. Whereas if you're at, at the non-kid haver's house, you're just going to be watching your kids a lot to make sure that they don't bonk their heads or break your porcelain figurines. But there's there's no way to avoid that. It's, it would be impractical. I mean, this is just a period of a few years where conversations become difficult to have. And then the kids get a little bit more independent and you can talk like a grown-up again. And you sort of just have to wait that out, I think. Yeah. Yeah. The best thing you can do for your friends who have kids is to be patient with them until their kids are old enough that they can talk to you again. So, yeah, overall, I think our message here is unless your apartment features some kind of, like, like sculpture that sends unshielded 600 volt arcs of electricity across your living room. <laughs> like if you have that, you should turn it off. But other than that, you are totally fine. Or you live you live in uh, at the Erie in Game of oh, Thrones, right. and you've got the right. moon door in the center of your living room. Don't right. you know? Put put like a little manhole cover over the moon door when you have you toddlers coming over. Ch- 
a child-proof lock on the moon door. Yes, that's just basic <laughs> safety. The one other point that this great question raises for me is a debate I've been having, which is how much should you child-proof your own home? I mean, there's certain obvious things like putting the outlet covers on and stuff that you should do, but there is a philosophical divide between, you know, battening everything down in in soft coverings so that there are no sharp corners for children to bonk their heads on and just sort of teaching children to be deliberate and, and to try not to bonk their heads on sharp corners. Um, and and I don't know where you come down on that divide, Dan. We came down in our house on protecting kids from anything that could kill them instantly, but not protecting them from things that might kill them over a matter of minutes or hours. <laughs> Generally, like we felt like we want – the point of childproofing for us was so that we could, for example, like be in another room for a minute or two while we do something, we, even though we have kids who are of the age where they go explore and do stuff. So if there's like a TV that they could pull down on themselves and kill themselves instantly, we would like secure that. But if there was a cabinet – that had, you know, some dishes in it that if they hit themselves over the head with it a hundred times, they would eventually suffer brain damage. That's not an issue. Like, we can get to them before they get to that hundredth time hitting themselves on the head with a dish. Right. The corners are tricky because they sort of fall in the middle. You know, I'm at the age... Well, I'm at the age. My children are at the age where <laughs> their heads look like little bruised apples all the time because right. they keep bonking them against things. And very thankfully, so far, those have all been, you know acceptable bonks. But, you know, apparently yesterday there was some near miss with a kitchen corner where had my son been standing a few inches different, there could have been a trip to the emergency room and it was all fine. But the, the corners, the bonkability of corners, that, that to me is the real open question. I'm going to call my first novel Acceptable Bonks. <laughs> all right. Thanks so much, Julia, for joining us. Thanks, Dan. All right. Here's a question from prudish American Betsy from Virginia. Take it away, Betsy. I think this week I learned that I'm a prudish American and I'm worrying it's affecting my kids. My daughters are 7 and 10 and we're about to take our first international trip to some lakes in Germany. And I read in Slate this week that everyone there likes to swim totally naked. So the thought of being with my kids around all these naked strangers is stressing me out and I don't know why. Um, we're trying to teach our kids to think bodies can be beautiful no matter their size or age. But my husband and I would rather have our teeth pulled out than to walk around in public places naked. So um, we want our kids to be proud of their bodies for being um, strong and healthy and to not worry about their weight, but they're obsessed with pop stars and their skimpy outfits. And how do we teach them? It's, you know, all body parts are great, but not to walk around the mall dressed like Katy Perry. Um, and I just wanted to know if Dan and Allison strut around naked. Thanks. Well, no, we don't strut around naked at work, no, I mean, other than on casual Fridays. But so joining me to talk about how to handle Euro nudity with your kids is the author of Slate's Gentleman Scholar Advice column, Troy Patterson. Hi, Troy. Hello. Troy, are you free with your body around the house in front of your son? Uh, I think uh, my household is sort of naked-ish. I've got a kid who's three and a half, and um, I like him to be naked because it. Uh, we, we, we're still getting our potty going game tight and so oh, yeah. um simplifies things and um we're not yet to the point uh of being self consciously self conscious about our nakedness or nudity around him. I think you know, once he hits the age of reason then it's time for me to get an extra bathrobe. Yeah, we've reached the point with our kids where 
I am self-conscious around them, but they are not yet self-conscious around us. And I think that they are starting to notice the disparity. You know, once upon a time when they were little, they ran around naked and sometimes I would be naked in front of them and it really didn't make that much of a difference. But now we're, it's sort of counterweighted towards them and away from me. And soon none of us will be naked around each other at all, I assume. But so how should Betsy, do you think, handle this upcoming German lake country vacation? Should she strip down? Well, let's see. The first thing I want to note, I want to correct her impression that everyone in German, in Germany likes to swim nude. It happens that this week I saw um, the, there's a story in the current uh, French L about uh, the decline of topless sunbathing in France. And uh, some of the coverage of that story has mentioned that in Germany and Austria, about a third of people like to swim in the nude. So, you know, it's, it seems like when in Rome, it's, it's clothing optional. You know, I would um, encourage Betsy not to do anything that freaks her out. Um, and generally, to, shouldn't the whole thing be downplayed? Shouldn't it be just be as you're strolling to the sand, you casually mention to the kids, oh, by the way, you know, this is a, a place where people have slightly different standards of modesty, so you might see some private parts, but it's not a big deal. I don't know. I think that I might encourage a little more aggressiveness on this front. I sort of feel like she and her husband should seize the day. You know, I feel like the lesson that you can teach in Germany isn't even really necessarily one about modesty or about body image or anything like that, but about about seizing the opportunities that travel to other places gives you. You know, here in America, it is it is trickier to find a place where you would ever have the chance to strip down on the beach uh, amid the amid the glories of other people's bodies. And so what better way to embrace the difference of this foreign culture than to have the whole family turn their bare American asses to the warm German sun? Like, I think that that is, that's the way that Betsy should go. But I don't know if I would have the courage to go that way when I take my inevitable vacation to German Lake Country. That doesn't sound very relaxing to me. <laughs> isn't this the whole point of the beach to relax? I ask as someone who's not really a beach person. But is the whole point of travel not to broaden one's mind? Oh, yes, it is. Um, travel broadens the mind. Uh, I suppose that would be an important difference between travel and tourism. Um, well, 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 well. When in Rome. So when in Rome, you must wear a toga? I guess so. Well, Betsy, I do think that your question is good, and your heart seems to me that it is in the right place. And I think that in the end, Troy is right, that if you – if you underplay it to a certain extent, you will have kids who are interested in what is going around, on around them but who and who will understand that there is no shame in what is going on around them but who will not necessarily uh, pressure you and your husband to uh, strip down if that is what you are uncomfortable with. Thank you so much, Troy, for joining me for this. Um, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And the last thing, P.S. to Betsy, this is the moment to teach. It's not polite to stare. Okay. Our final call comes from Katie in Cleveland. Hi, my name is Katie from Cleveland, Ohio. As a parenting question, why do when you ask a question and they say and your parents say no, and you say why, and your parents say because I told you to, it doesn't really make any sense. I want to know why they say I told you to. Thank you. Lyra, I say I told you to because I am your father. Also, where did you come up with Cleveland? You've never even been to Cleveland. Thank you for calling. If you've got a question you want us to answer on a future podcast and you are not my daughter, please give us a call at 424-255-7833. That's 424-255-RUDE. 
All right, on to recommendations. Allison recommends being on vacation. I am generally recommending, as mine, subscribing to magazines for your kids. That is my recommendation. Highlights or Ladybug or Baby Bug or Ranger Rick or Sports Illustrated for Kids or whatever. Specifically, I'm recommending Top Secret Adventures, which is a kind of magazine slash activity book that gets sent every few months by the Highlights people. It contains like a million puzzles and games and a big central mystery that the kids are meant to solve. Each one is pegged to some country somewhere around the world, so kids learn a little something while they're doing it. It comes to our house like every two and a half months. Lyra goes totally apeshit when her copy comes in the mail. She just sits with it, happily doing puzzles for hours, and then she hands it to Harper, who also happily does stuff in it. It seems really good for kids age like 8 to 11 who love getting things in the mail, which is to say all kids ages 8 to 11. So that's our show. Please email us at at slate.com to suggest topics or recommend books or guests or whatever, just to say hi. And if you've got a question, once again, that you want us to answer on the air, please give us a call at any hour and leave us a message at 424-255-7833. That's 424-255-ROOT. If you like the show, please tell your friends. You know, if each listener of Mom and Dad are Fighting told just 20 friends a week about our podcast, none of our listeners would have any friends anymore. So maybe just aim for a more modest number. Please subscribe on iTunes. You can just search for Mom and Dad are Fighting. And you can leave a comment or a rating. That helps people find the show. Our producer is Chris Wade. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. Many thanks to Mom and Dad are Fighting intern Laura Smith for lots of great research for this episode. Thanks to Katie Waldman, Hannah Rosen, Troy Patterson, Jordan Weissman, Amanda Hess, and Julia Turner for joining in. No thanks to Allison for going on vacation. And thank you for listening. <laughs>